Welcome to episode five of Upbeat from Everything Conducting, the podcast made by conductors for conductors. My name is John Devlin, and I am the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez Yanez, principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. Each week on Upbeat, we explore concepts related to the field of conducting. It doesn't matter if you're just starting to explore the idea of conducting or already lead your own ensemble. We've got something for you. Our first segment each week is called The 4-4, where Enrico and I share a list of four things related to our topic of the day that we think will be most useful in your career. Today, we're going to take an upbeat look at how to succeed during an audition for the position of assistant conductor. After that, we'll be welcoming our guest for today, Peter Cazares. Peter Cazares is the director of opera at UCLA's Herb Alpert School of Music. He's also led a prolific career as both a stage director and operatic tenor, having worked with some amazing conductors such as Leonard Bernstein, which I can't wait to hear some of those stories. And Enrico, now that we're done with the scripted portion, which was what take eight there, because you're coming back from vacation in Mexico. Welcome back. Thank you. And thanks for acknowledging my rustiness in, in getting through that. Uh, but, you know, in a moment of levity here another thing i think we wanted to bring up was we wanted to thank some of our audience who has reached out and told us how much they've enjoyed the ads from our sponsor should we let everybody in and make sure that they are all on the inside of our jokes (laughs) i I hope so yes for those of you who have not yet figured it out all of our ads or sponsorships i should say are unfortunately fake Uh, (laughs) though i have recently been inspired by the great demand to maybe start creating some of these products i mean i don't know the baton flask seems to be something that a lot of people are been showing an interest in purchasing (laughs) exactly once once we released the the podcast with the baton flask ad i got a lot of texts like that url doesn't work and you know (laughs) so i think you know we are a non-profit entity here but maybe there's a way for us to uh employ a young entrepreneur who wants to maybe shape some of these fake products with us because wouldn't you say that that's the most fun we're having every week for sure yes absolutely (laughs) anyway speaking of fun i think we are really excited to talk about this important 4-4 topic so why don't we give our first upbeat and head to the 4-4 Welcome to the 4-4, where this week we take our upbeat look at the topic of the pressure-filled day of an assistant conductor audition. This type of audition is filled with lots of activities, both on and off the podium, so there's a lot to cover. So let's jump into beat one, which is effective first-round conducting. So one of the things that, again, is intimidating about an assistant conductor audition is that you walk out onto the stage mm-hmm. and the podium is one of the loneliest places to be, especially <laughs> on an audition day, oh, right? Yeah. With a hundred professional musicians, all of whom uh, are there to judge you. That is their favorite day. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I think what do we do as applicants and auditionees in this realm to impress the people in front of us and make them want to work with us in the years ahead. Definitely. And and I think really to answer that question, we need to have an understanding of there there are two different rounds that we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. Your your goal should be different throughout the process. In the first round, generally the shorter round, you'll have about 20 minutes to get through a fairly substantial repertoire list unless they've condensed it. Yeah. And so what are those some of those 
uh, pieces that would you would typically see on a first round? So oftentimes there will be a piece by Beethoven, you know, something very standard repertoire, usually something romantic, often a Brahms symphony, one or three. Uh, they'll often look for something that is technically challenging. So you'll get something like the Rite of Spring or something like uh, the mixed meter section of Appalachian Spring uh, towards yeah. the end. There. So a good mix of things that are named spring and not. And <laughs> uh, I guess Vivaldi <laughs> the, is the next logic. The, uh, yes, very technically <laughs> challenging is Vivaldi. Um, so... You know, this is where coming prepared is going to show itself well, is that when you step on the podium, since you don't have much time in the first round to really talk, they're testing your efficiency. As we've talked about before in previous podcasts, an assistant conductor is often going to get things like education concerts and pop shows where you have very little preparation time. And so here, this is sort of a replica of that. You have Mm -hmm. 20 minutes to get through this whole list of stuff. So maybe you have time in this round to throw one or two comments out. But really, this is more of a performance where they're really testing your ability to get through stuff and then show what it's going to look like in concert. Right. And so wouldn't you say that in that first round, oftentimes, I think intentionally, the people running the audition don't give you a specific instruction about how to spend that time. They say, go with your excerpts. And then the time management is incredibly important and there's no path to follow that is assuredly correct. And all the evaluators may be expecting something different. So what is your approach when if you have, let's say, 18 minutes of excerpts and 25 minutes to execute this? Like what has the path been that you found to be successful? I've generally approached the first round more as a performance than anything else. If Uh things really get off track, I will stop to fix things. But generally speaking, I do not enter into the first round assuming that I'm going to try and make some huge rehearsal moment where I'm going to, you know, give my big musical idea and change the course of things. I think here really they want to see... Here's some very standard repertoire. What does it look like when you're on the podium doing it? What does your gesture look like? How can you affect it without speaking to us? Later on, when they get to round two, that's when the rehearsal starts. And right. that's when they get to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, you know, from my perspective, now we're about to hold our first assistant conductor audition here in Wheeling, for example. Right. And uh, one of the things that I will be looking at there is efficiency, both right. in terms of the gesture, because the more you can do with your right hand, the more repertoire we can include in a rehearsal or in a performance that has one rehearsal, right. right? Because you can deliver that. And then if you do stop in this segment of the audition process, the way you use vocal instructions is incredibly important. Okay. Do you know to tell people where, who, and what? Give an instruction that actually makes a difference and fixes the problem and move on. And I think we both agree that this comes even more into play in the later conducting round of the audition, which we're going to get to in beat two. Beat two is keys to success for the final conducting round of an audition. This is when the orchestra is really looking at the rehearsal process that they would be going through with you. And this uh, second portion, so uh, as we mentioned, the first round is usually about 20 minutes. You'll have an interview in between. And then at the end, you'll have a longer round, which is usually 30 to 40 minutes with less repertoire during which you'll be asked to then rehearse that repertoire as Mm -hmm. if you were preparing for a, a concert. And, you know, I remember from grad school when we were in school together, John, that 
one of the greatest lessons you ever taught me was about efficiency of rehearsal. Can you just talk through briefly how it is that you address the orchestra in a situation like this where you have to be really efficient and solve a problem? What would be an example of one of those comments? Sure. I think you have to go in a like cascade order where mm-hmm. you eliminate people from paying attention, frankly, in the right order. <laughs> so the first thing you do is you tell them the place in the music. Mm-hmm. Because if you say clarinets, immediately the flutes and oboes stop listening. Right? Even if it may be applicable to them. Right. Yeah. So I always give the spot first because then everyone finds that spot. And even right. after you do the rehearsal, it's likely that you'll begin at this place so everyone will have found it already. Right. Even if you only address a few instruments during the rehearsal part of it. Then I state the instruments that I'm calling upon and always in score order because that mm-hmm. way people will listen to you until you've passed their instrument. Mm-hmm. And then I give the specific comment. And so having a system in place like this is a great way to show your efficiency of rehearsing. And then again, obviously show what it'll be like if you're the assistant conductor, what kind of musical ideas you bring to the table what kinds of things are you hearing and identifying from the podium that you will be then working on and showing your abilities in that aspect right and i think that you know to close this point your authenticity is going to come across mm-hmm. don't go up onto the podium and play a character be the best version of yourself because if you get the job that's what you're going to want to be and Absolutely. that means if you have are having fun have fun and if you are, uh, if you have a musical idea you really wanted to dig into because you are convinced that this makes the music better, do it. Mm-hmm. And also, if you make a mistake, that is okay to admit. In fact, everyone who's watching, especially if you've got the music director watching, will know <laughs> what happened. Right. Say, hey, th- I could have done that better. One more chance for me from C. Boom. Go. Right. And that is actually a good thing to demonstrate, that humbleness. But where I would say the last thing uh, point here is that Overly humble or overly deferential to the musicians and using the subjunctive a lot is something that I hate to see from young conductors. Mm-hmm. Oh, could we go back to rehearsal C and would the second clarinet mind considering the uh, lessening of a <laughs> dynamic in order for the possibility of better blend? No, just at rehearsal C, could the second clarinet be slightly less for balance? Thank you. Let's start there. Yeah. Because that shows that, you know, even though you might be you know, the, the least experienced person on stage, you still understand what your role is, and that's to be an effective leader. That's right, John. And that authenticity that you're talking about is going to be incredibly important during the interview portion of the audition, which we'll get into in our next beat after a brief message from our sponsor. Are you, like most conductors during the time of COVID, antsy to get back on the podium and conduct live music again? Well, too bad, you can't. But we have the next best thing. Introducing the world's very first monthly for-profit grand champion acclaimed artistry conducting competition, hosted by the International Association of Conducting Fellows and Distinguished Jury Artists of Repute, Renown, and Reputation. Are you tired of other competitions requiring pesky things like resumes, recommendation letters, and in-person performances? So is the IACFDJARRR. Here's how to apply to our competition in only two easy steps. First, submit a video of at least 30 seconds, but no more than 45, of you conducting any type of ensemble. Piano one hand is acceptable if that is all the applicant is able to provide. Second, send the application fee of 495 US dollars to competition at caymanislandaccount.nigerianprince.com. Bitcoin also accepted. 
Then, our jury of internationally kind of famous people will review the tapes and declare almost everyone a winner. It's that easy. You get famous and we get rich. That's our guarantee. Your fame not guaranteed. As this is a new endeavor, we cannot yet name anyone who has gone on to have success based on winning our competition. But with a new contest every month, you can be sure that by the end of the season, you'll be in some great company. Apply now. The IACFDJARRR is not responsible for your fame once the competition has ended. There are no financial prizes or concerts with orchestras of any kind. We are solely responsible for deciding which kind of famous people are on the jury. No refunds. Beat 3 is bringing ideas to your interviews. (laughs) The interview phase is really a chance for us as candidates to distinguish ourselves. If you've gotten to the audition and the music director has liked your videotape, you could probably conduct, right. but not everyone can interview. That's right. <laughs> and this is the first chance that they really have an opportunity to hear what you're going to sound like when you're talking to an audience, to donors, to interviewers, but also what kinds of things you're going to contribute to make the organization better. What are your ideas? What are the kinds of artistic mm-hmm and programmatic goals that you might be bringing, even if it's working on things like education programs. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head there because it's a twofold thing in an interview. They're seeing what ideas do you have, Mm -hmm. but almost just as important is how do you articulate them and in a pressure-filled situation that you can't really fully prepare for because you don't know the questions in advance, how do you handle that? So John, how do you either prepare for an interview or Actually, now coming up, you have an assistant conductor audition that you're going to be, you know, judging other people who are being interviewed. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of things that you then would look for from these candidates during this this opportunity to to speak with them? Right. I think that it becomes very apparent the thoughtfulness that someone has put into his or her artistic identity, their ideas for how to express that identity through programming and through conducting. And then also, like I said, that public uh, speaking experience, how they articulate themselves in front of others is truly important to how the representation of the organization happens out in public. The other thing that I think comes across is, does the candidate have an awareness for what it means to be part of a team? And you mentioned before, we don't expect you to have done this job before, but do you know how it is like to work with a librarian or what the educational director is going to need from you or what an artistic administrator, personnel manager is going to need from you. And if as the questions are asked, you start to draw those connections for us and show you understand that it's a team, that's the type of person I think is going to be successful in the organization, even if their experience as an assistant conductor may be small or non-existent as of yet. Right. And one of the things that can often be intimidating about even just the application is that, you know, here, this orchestra is offering a great assistant conductor job, but you must have five years experience as an assistant conductor <laughs> and 10 years as a music director of a small... I mean, you know, sometimes the requirements are ridiculous. Right. So then you're being asked a question like, tell us about your previous position, the kinds of education programs you programmed. Well, if this is your first audition, maybe you don't have any that you've done before. But what you can show, like you said, is a deep understanding and preparation to show that even if you've never done it yourself, you have put enough thought and ideas together that that you know 100% your program would be successful. One of the things I do when I'm pitching an education program, for example, is I will go online and look up the state curricular standards for arts and for music specifically. Mm-hmm. And if I'm asked to prepare a K-2 through 
education program, I will go in and look at what the curricular standards are for K through two students and make sure that I outline what the goals are and how I'm addressing them in my program. So if one of the goals is the basic ability to clap and reproduce a rhythm or something like that, then I better show that on this piece of music during my speaking to the audience or during musical examples on stage, we will be accomplishing that curricular goal. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that's saving time for the education director who would have to otherwise do that. And it's also making your product more valuable because all the teachers who bring their classes to the concert hall are going to be able to say, oh, this is why our field trip is worth it. It addresses these curricular standards and it's a worthwhile investment for us to go. And I think what you're getting at there is there's no slick answer to replace the thoroughness of the work and the awareness that you're bringing when you give an example like that right. of the type of work that's needed if you are the candidate who wins that position. Right. But I will say that there are certain questions that are asked often and can serve as slip-up moments for people that don't know that they're coming. Mm. I have a few in mind. What would you put at the top of that list? I mean, at the top of the list, there's always going to be the what is some challenge that you've overcome? Right. And mm -hmm. and how did you do that? And, and usually they want something musical or an experience that you had in terms of being around an orchestra. And yeah, I heard the second flute play sharp <laughs> and I said, play flatter. And they did. it. Amazing. You have overcome such adversity. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he meant adversity. adversity. I was going to go back and edit that. But thanks for pointing it out anyway. <laughs> um this is really where preparation is important, too. You need to come with your briefcase of answers to specific mm -hmm. questions because there are a list of at least 10 to 20 questions that every time will often come up in an interview. And if you have your go-to story, then you're going to seem very prepared and very eloquent because you've rehearsed that story over and over again. And like you've said in, in your article about interviews, you have to be authentic in those stories and authentic in what you're sharing but you also have to be prepared and efficient in how you say it. Right, because your goal is to tell the story of who you are, why you're the perfect fit for this position, and why you really want the job. And so the questions are all avenues into that narrative. And you have to start being specific and answering their question. Mm -hmm. But if you're wily enough, you can infuse those answers with the points that you know you want to have made by the end of the interview. Right. Are there any others on that list of questions that we might not expect but are there and it can be a challenge even if we're prepared? Sure. I mean, uh, one that I find people have a challenge with is just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, good it's one. It's so yeah. broad. I mean, it's often the first question you'll get, mm -hmm. but... People often don't know what to do with that. Do I recite my resume again? You have it in front of you. You could look it up. Do I tell you the story of my life from kindergarten through till now? It's very challenging, but it's purposefully open-ended so that people give you the opportunity to really take it in whatever direction will best illuminate why you're a great candidate. So yes, give a little bit about your background, but also how can you take advantage of the openness of that question to then show some of the strengths and ways in which you set yourself apart from other candidates. Uh, John, how do you approach a question like that? What are some of the things you think about? Yeah, I know that they have my resume, but I don't assume that they have looked at it, or at least not recently. And therefore, it's important to lay out the groundwork. Oh, this is that guy, or this is that girl. Right. The one that went to Maryland and then went to, lived in D.C. and then went, you know, That puts you back into context. Mm -hmm. But I view it as if I got asked to speak at the Rotary 
as the assistant conductor of this orchestra, mm-hmm. how would I spend the first three minutes of my time talking to them over half an hour? Mm-hmm. Give a little sense of who I am, but also say what my goals are as an artist, why I would be excited to have this job, and again, why I would be a good fit for right. it. All of that goes into tell us a little bit about yourself, right. but it's what the committee's looking for. And if you can frame, just like you would with a, a political speech oh, yeah. at the beginning, what my goals are. By the end of this time, you will be convinced of them. The last of those goals should be that I get this job. And you can lay that out (laughs) at the beginning. Well, we have one more suggestion on how you can get this job. And that'll come in beat four. So beat four is about being a creative communicator. The position of assistant conductor is I think, kind of kaleidoscopic in nature. It's multifaceted. It is constantly changing. And you're often going to see something you've never seen before <laughs> as, as you're confronted with all these new situations. And it's because I think you relate to so many different constituencies throughout the normal process of, of executing this this job. And one of the most important ones in terms of communication is with your audience. And sometimes this actually comes up in the audition day, right, Enrico? Yeah. Uh, you know, in a lot of the auditions I've taken, often during the final round, one of the things you'll be asked to do is address the orchestra as if they are one of two types of audience. So they'll they'll choose one of the pieces, and maybe it's Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, and they'll say, before you conduct it, we'd like you to address the orchestra as if they are first a subscription concert audience mm-hmm. and then second as though they were a education or family concert audience. <laughs> so then you're imagining the Nashville Symphony as a bunch of eight-year-olds and Little that's kids, really. right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's exactly their goal is what is this conductor going to sound like when he's giving a pre-concert lecture compared to how is he going to address young kids when he's giving an education concert and this is not the time in the audition to suddenly become reserved or become (laughs) at all conservative it's quite the opposite yeah just make sure you feel no embarrassment whatsoever (laughs) exactly it's pretty easy right um obviously when you're doing the subscription concert version of this you want to come with some music history or some facts to present but you still want it to be entertaining and engaging for Mm -hmm. the audience so even if it's only two minutes of time have something interesting or something fun that you know about each of these pieces that when you're asked to give a presentation you can do that in an engaging and entertaining manner yeah and i think people want to know what you love about the music too that always comes across really well absolutely and then when you're asked to do an education version of it now is your time to, you know, pretend you're on Sesame Street or you're one of the Wiggles or something and really yeah. go all in. I mean, or I've discovered some gold in uh, California. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is your opportunity to to show that you can engage all types of audiences in a successful manner, because I've watched a lot of these auditions. And if you get up there and you give your pre-concert lecture version and then your education version sounds very similar to it, that means those kids are going to be falling asleep. I mean, Mm -hmm, it just is. mm -hmm. You need to come with energy, with excitement and humor and something that is going to... And it's going to feel goofy. It's going to feel weird because now you're doing it in front of some 60 to 80 year olds that are maybe in the orchestra. And, right, right. and you have to act like a little kid and a goofball. And talk about stuff you didn't learn about in grad That's school. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, I think, is what really leads to a successful communicator in terms of what the 
committee is going to see and what they're going to then be able to envision you doing if you get this job. Mm -hmm. But the other aspect of communicating on the audition day is that we tend to forget that the whole day is an audition. It's not just the mm. three rounds. It's not just the conducting interview and then conducting again. But every interaction you have with people backstage, before or after the interviews, it's all part of the process. And, And John, I think this is a great opportunity to show your communication skills in that other avenue, even in these less formal interactions. Right. I think that what everyone is hoping for is a good colleague to join the team. And being an excellent artist is a huge part of that. So is the way that your art is helped to creation by the entire team. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that uh, when young young artists ask me, what do you do to prepare either in high school or in college to become a conductor? I say, uh, say yes to everything and try to do all the different jobs that are involved in an orchestra's uh, in, a, in an orchestra's workforce. Mm-hmm. So I've been a librarian. I've been an operations manager. I've been a personnel manager. I've been a program notes annotator. I've run subtitles. I've designed lighting and doing all of these things because at some point you're going to work with that person and either you're going to have empathy for what they do mm-hmm. or if you do not, you're going to cause difficulty in their work life and that's not something you want to have happen. So right. I try when I speak to these people backstage, you're going to get to know the personnel manager and the uh, third person down on the artistic administration poll very uh-huh. well. <laughs> and so forging a little bit of a collegial relationship with them on that audition day, if you can seek that person out and drop into the conversation that you've done that type of work and you know what the struggles are and how in your position you would strive to help make sure that the the most ease of relationship is present is a really good thing. So that is it for the 4-4. Four four. We hope you've enjoyed the information we've shared here. It's been a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, We're going to have one more word for our sponsor before we come back with our interview. Are you spending hours on ear training and technique but still haven't experienced the kind of success as a conductor you know you deserve? Ever wonder what the secret was to becoming a superstar? Well, we're about to let the cat out of the bag. It's all about having amazing hair. But what if you can't grow amazing conductor locks that float in perfect rhythm with your baton? Then we have the product for you. Presenting Maestro Rugs. Maestro Rugs are the only human hair-based wigs designed specifically for conductors and the demands placed on their follicles. Maestro Rugs come modeled after all of your favorite conductor dues. Looking for a quaff that'll flail with great flamboyance and show your incredible artistic prowess? Check out our Dudamel model. Or maybe you want something edgy yet elegant that won't require you to constantly push the hair out of your own eyes. Then check out the Carion. For those looking for a classic refined style, we offer the Janssen. Or perhaps you'd prefer a more eccentric look like the Gergiev or even the Stokowski. Maestro rugs have already been met with rave reviews like this longtime user, Ankush Bahel. I first started using Maestro rugs when I became the assistant conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. I knew the audience and orchestra would respond better if I had that look of a great maestro. Now, I just won my first major music directorship, and I could not have done it without the Eschenbach from Maestro Rugs. So what are you waiting for? Pick up the phone to order your Maestro Rug today. Welcome back. It is now my great pleasure to welcome a longtime dear friend and mentor of mine, the director of opera at UCLA's Herb Alpert School of Music, director Peter Cazares, who has had a long 
and just incredibly unique career, starting from his history as an operatic tenor, where he premiered roles in works by Leonard Bernstein and John Corigliano and many, many other composers. Later on as a stage director, having worked with all the great companies throughout the United States and abroad, he has directed things like Bernstein's A Quiet Place with the Boston Symphony at Tanglewood, Barbara Seville, Nozze di Figaro with Washington National Opera. Peter, the list goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> I, we, we'd use the whole episode if I recited your whole bio, but welcome <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Peter, I thought maybe we would just kick things off for younger conductors getting into the field of opera conducting. What is that relationship like between stage director and conductor and how does one navigate that successfully? Okay, that's a great question, and it's really important, not just for young directors and conductors, but for experienced practitioners. I believe that it is in everybody's best interest for there to be a clear line of communication between the stage director and the conductor, and that basically musical matters are the conductor's province, and dramatic and staging matters are the stage director's province. In terms of how to plan it, First of all, is to really know the score and to understand that, you know, likelihood you might know the score better than directors, although directors should know the score. Also, of course, we have to realize that it helps if the stage management team is on it. And this is such a tiny little thing, but it's so crucially important that everybody in the directing team is going to be working off a piano vocal score, most Mm -hmm, likely. mm -hmm. But they must have either measure numbers or rehearsal numbers, because what looks like page 151 System two, bar three in my score has nothing to do with what's in your score. Right. So you'll see same, scene three, measure 878. And then I'll know where you are and then we off we go. So Peter, what happens when a conductor comes and encounters a slightly less flexible director than yourself? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do they navigate that sort of situation? The basic rule of PK's guide to success is... <laughs> Those who lose their temper lose the respect of others in the room. And that I have seen that happen so many times. If I have to boil it down, you can have success as a director, as a conductor, and in a production, as an artist, really, in two ways. Through respect or through fear. If you show temper, if you are mean, if you fail to acknowledge a mistake you have made, and this is the big one, then you will immediately and probably irreparably lose the respect of everyone in the room. You also have had the unique experience of working with some of the all-time greats, including one that you've shared several stories with me about, which is Leonard Bernstein. I mean, you've everything from auditioning with him and then eventually singing with him and premiering works with him. Can you tell us maybe a couple of highlights or a little bit about that experience. Sure, sure. I adored him. I realized early on that even though he was one of the greatest musicians ever, his real singular talent was as a teacher. This man was a rabbi. You know, that's the original meaning of the word rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a musician's prophet. A friend of mine had written the libretto for Bernstein's last opera, A Quiet Place, which was based on characters that he had first articulated in the opera Trouble in Tahiti Mm -hmm. about a dysfunctional family, which was composed as a wedding present for his wife. Okay, fine. Uh, (laughs) Stephen Wadsworth had written this, who's best friend and very close, and had said, you know, 
no promises, but why don't you try out for this? And I was like, okay. So I went and I auditioned, and it was very interesting. I, you know, paid uh, my first visit to the Dakota, the famous apartment on the second floor. Things proceed. They have workshops. Somebody from the Young Artist Program at Houston is cast to do the tenor role. And I'm like, okay, whatever, moving forward. I'm going to my second year as an apprentice artist in Chautauqua. This was in the summer of 82, I guess. And I get an inquiry, would I like to sing the tenor solo in Songfest, which Lenny was going to be conducting with the Los Angeles Philharmonic of the Hollywood Bowl. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> so I said to the folks at Chautauqua, would you kindly let me out of my contract for these couple of days? I had to go do one at the bowl and then one at um, Concord Pavilion. So they said, sure. I mean, they, <laughs> at that point, I was in the chorus of the Barber of Seville. So somehow they managed to, uh, I, I, they managed to cover for me. Quite an ascension. <laughs> it was, yeah, but that's sort of what the business is like. It's like one night you're going, you know, and it's, that's the orchestra, but you're singing Barber of Seville. And the next night you're on, two nights later, three nights later, you're on NPR live broadcast across the country. Um, singing all sorts of crazy notes. I will say that I had with him an experience that I've never had before, which was that at the end of this piece, 12 songs on American poems, the line is the orchestra, and the singers are going within the sky, within the sky, and then they go within the sky, boom, and that's a high C for the tenor and for the soprano. So, you know, most tenors, not the Sopranos, of course, they're just like, fine, bring me a cigarette. <laughs> but tenors are like, you know, they're sweating. And he knew that I was a young tenor and I was going to be like, rrr, rrr. and he looked at me and he gave me this look. And he then he stuck his hand out and he went like that. And the, literally the thing flew out of my <laughs> mouth. I didn't know what had happened. And it was just out there. So if you can find that recording on NPR... <laughs> find it. I want it. It was really good. Um, and I thought, well, that's a good thing. What I didn't realize was that that was, in a sense, my audition, my actual audition for Quiet Place, because I had been, they had found out that there were some issues with the person who had been turned out. He didn't really want to do that role for various reasons in, in a quiet place. So I got a crack at it. But I had to run the gauntlet one more time. Okay. So my Agent, we got on the train at about 10 o'clock and we got off in Fairfield, Connecticut at about 11. Or we go to the house. Stephen has been there working for a couple of weeks. And he said, would you like some lunch? And I said, well, sure. Should we wait for them? He's like, oh, no, 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 no. He's not going to be up until 4.30 or 5. <laughs> and we're like, okay. So we have some lunch. We hang out. Lenny comes down and is like, oh, hi, it's good to see you again. Oh, it's great. How have you been? And... He has lunch, and then he says, well, let's go to the studio. So we go to the studio. I sing the flower song from Carmen. And he, like, he's like, great, do this more, this, whatever. So I tried my best, and he was like, that's great, that's great, that's great. And we work some more, and we work some more. And then we work a little more. Someplace in there, I took a break. I called my voice teacher. She said, how's it coming? I said, I think, I think my voice is really tired. <laughs> she said, oh, honey. Yeah, that happened to Marilyn Horn when she was working on the Carmen with him. Just tell him you're finished. Don't push it. Do not push it. So I came in and said, I think I'm probably... He said, yeah, fine. Well, it's time for dinner anyway. 
So, I mean, it wasn't really time for dinner, but dinner probably happened at about <laughs> 10. So we had dinner. At a one in the morning or two in the morning, he's like, let's go back to the studio. And I'm like, oh, God, do I have to sing? And he's, no, 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 no. I'm working on some stuff. I want you there. And I'm like, okay. So Stephen and I and Joyce trot back over to the studio, at which point, one of many times in my life with him that I have thought, no one will ever believe me, <laughs> but I will tell this story. He's scheduled to play in a concert at Alice Tully Hall with Michael Tilson Thomas. And it is the Stravinsky arrangement, forehand, one piano arrangement of Rite of Spring. And I'm like, and what he said, well, you and Stephen are going to play the primo. That's what Michael's doing. I'm going to do the secondo. And I'm like, we're going <laughs> to, what? It's like, you're going to play the two top hands. So there I go going, that part I got right pretty much but um, it was okay so the most I ever got was to a most rudimentary uh, ability to read the Patetic Sonata nothing past that and you know even that like maybe 20% so I'm like okay this is there's no way this is going to end well you know, that, that sacrificial virgin is going to be gone long before we get the <laughs> final bar. But what I hadn't counted on was that he would, through the entire piece, be teaching us about the piece and about the chromaticism and about the harmony. And I'll, you know, never forget, for instance, when we get to the entrance of the young men, the, uh, 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 that whole thing. He's like, look, everyone calls these the barbarous chords, but what are they really? They're this chord, which is totally normal, but it's over this chord, which is also totally normal. But when you put them together, it sounds weird. So that's why this was such a genius. And that's, he said, that is behind the whole piece. So it was amazing. It took about two and a half hours. It was a long schlag. And, of course, I went to the concert, and, of course, it was great. And, boy, was I glad I was not playing Primo. <laughs> <laughs> or even just the right hand of Primo. So I think uh, maybe to steer us towards a conclusion here, a question that has occurred to me is based on, you know, you've seen so many people both on stage as one of the participants uh, in the musical product and then as the stage director, um, young conductors who actually get a chance to lead one of these productions what are markers of success that you felt as an artist where you say this conductor is succeeding? They're supporting the art when they need to make decisions, they're making decisions and they understand the relationship that needs to happen between the conductor and the orchestra, the conductor and the singers and how that circle of energy and sympathy works. Anybody who's doing this, if they have a brain in their body is going to be scared at some point. Like, can I really do this? Mm -hmm. Fear communicates itself extremely easily. So somehow people who manage to derail that and put that fear into achieving something, that is a benchmark of success. I'm not saying you can't succeed if you appear scared, but it's a hell of a lot easier if you don't because, again, it's about building up the trust. Mm -hmm. So I think all the things you can do to build up the trust of your participants means that everybody will get on the same page sooner. And that's what you want. You know, as a director or as a conductor, you're basically constructing a playpen or a sandbox. And you're saying, okay, it's not the entire beach. We're going to make a sandbox, and here it is, and now go have fun. Let's, let's have fun within the sandbox. But you have to delineate the parameters of the sandbox. So it's being flexible with what works, changing your plan if it doesn't work, 
And again, being prepared, but I'm fair, again, I am really lucky in that all the conductors I've worked with have always been on top of it from day one. Um, there's, you know, there's never really been a time when somebody opens a score and you see a butterfly fly out. Like, oh, <laughs> that, that went in there as a caterpillar. It's about flexibility and engaging the attention and understanding that if you're losing their attention, you're losing their interest. And if you lose their interest, you're going to lose their trust. And again, that's the main thing which you have to hold on to. As always, so great to talk to you and to hear your amazing, incredible stories. Every time there's a new one, and even when I get to hear the old ones, it's just, it's like a whole new adventure every single time. So I thank you so much for sharing that with us and with our audience. And we really appreciate you coming on to join us this week. It was my absolute pleasure, Enrico. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks. Nice to meet you, John. You as well. Thank you so much, Peter. And now, the coda. John, there you have it. A little glimpse into my uh, history and life with Peter Cazares and what, <laughs> what, my, what a day in the life at UCLA was like for me and all the other students in the opera department. <laughs> it's, just, it's clear that you both have a really special relationship and to be a fly on the wall essentially and hear how that unfolded was really special. And I think that that is a great way to preview what's going to happen on our next interview because speaking That's of right. special relationships and uh and time in school we are bringing in the godfather aren't we that's right oh my gosh i mean we're bringing in jim ross of course who was both uh, a mentor and like you said like a godfather to the two of us uh at maryland where he was the director of orchestral studies and gosh beyond that just one of the quintessential educators i think that is out there i mean the his love for and passion for teaching but also the diversity of his career having you know started off as an incredibly virtuosic young french horn player subbing with the boston symphony at the age of 16 at the age of 16 (laughs) right being the youngest member ever to then go over and work with the gavant house and the first american there right Right. i mean (laughs) like So, you know, we had stories to share this week. I'm sure we'll have another great batch of stories to share with him. Yeah, I mean, he's going to have Mazur stories. He's going to have more Bernstein stories. He's going to have Otto Von Mueller stories. <laughs> and, you know, I think the most special thing about Jim is that I have no idea what that interview is going to be like because right. he approaches every day with fresh eyes, right? Like right. nothing got into a routine with him. And I studied with him for seven years years and uh it felt vital every day and i think that's a testament to who he is and i i can't wait to have that talk and talking about things that we can't quite anticipate or don't know what to expect next week we're doing something kind of different with the 404 too so we are going to leave the question asking up to you our audience uh via social media you are going to be able to ask us some of your questions that we would otherwise spend maybe a whole 4-4 topic on. And then John and I will select four of those questions to then answer and give some of our thoughts on in next week's episode. 
Yeah, so we're looking forward to that new type of format for the 4-4 just for a week. We're going to try it as some fun and uh, get to know our audience a little bit better and then uh, back to regularly scheduled formatting uh, thereafter for a little while at least. Uh, speaking of the social media presence of everything conducting in the podcast, if you haven't already, please find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or other places where you get your podcasts and follow us. Uh, rate and review us. It really helps with the visibility of the podcast. If you can give us, you know, we prefer five stars, but if you think four <laughs> stars is really where we're at then you can do that too uh and then we are on uh facebook and instagram uh at everything conducting where you can uh see what's up with the podcast but also with the website that we think is a really essential resource for conductors out there in the world so thank you so much for listening to this episode and we're looking forward to having our next conversation you'll hear it on our next upbeat (laughs) 